Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief, and today I'm talking to one of Donald Trump's most ardent journalistic defenders. At the end of all of this investigation, at the end of all of, you know, we, we could not have more reporting on this. It looks like the crime that he committed was basically winning the election. Molly Hemingway is one of the most interesting people in Washington. She's a pretty reliable Trump defender on Fox News and at her magazine, The Federalist. Although sometimes she seems more interested in attacking the people who are attacking Trump rather than defending Trump. The way the media act like it's unprecedented that someone would get work done at a residence other than the White House is just, it's ridiculous. And partly it's because... I invited Molly on the show this week because I watch her on Twitter quite often. Often she's fighting with everyone at once. And I find her writing and her defense of Donald Trump very interesting and challenging. Welcome to the Atlantic interview, Molly Z. Hemingway. I like that Z. Yeah, when I got married, my I was really sad about changing my name because I loved my maiden name Ziegler so much. And my husband, last name Hemingway, was just very confused. He thought that he had such a good surname that I should be really happy about it. It's not it. a bad writer surname. I mean, it's yeah, better yeah. than Ziegler, no offense. Um, Molly, agree to disagree, that's fine. Agree okay. to disagree. Let's Let's start with this basic question. Are you pro-Trump or anti-anti-Trump or Trump curious, or are you going to be one of those people who say, I reject all labels? I just think I'm someone who hasn't been changed very much by Trump. I don't think about him that much. I have ideas Wait, I'm sorry. About... Pause. Stop. You don't think about Trump that much? I, I think everything's relative, and I see how some people just get whipped up either because they love him or because they hate him and everything revolves around him. And I'm sort of more interested in things I was interested before he came on the scene. I'm not saying he hasn't changed the way I look at things or that I'm not affected by the moment that we're in. Obviously, I am. I just don't get as upset. And I think this is partly because I come from a libertarian background, which just frankly has a little bit more tolerance of kookiness. Right. And so I... And people get naked at libertarian conventions. (laughs) And so much more. Uh, I find it like an intriguing moment. I find a lot that I like about it. So my my main problems with Trump would just be personal moral issues. I don't like the way he has lived his life. I don't think he's been a faithful husband. I don't like the way he talks about certain things. And I've felt that way since the 80s or whenever I first came to know about him. I didn't like him as a person. Uh, As far as what he's doing, I'm pretty happy. I thought he would be very progressive. He's turned out to be not so progressive. Um, It's, you know, in terms of policy, I like it. Let me walk back to something you just said. Um, You have a high tolerance for kookiness. You believe he's kooky? Well, I'm just saying that he is so outside the norm that we've seen for presidential behavior. But I think that's interesting to reflect on like once and then not to make it your daily so it doesn't bother wisdom. you that he might be nuts? I, I, I don't believe he's nuts. Well, no, all right. Let me, let me rephrase that because it's, I, I don't mean to suggest that he's nuts. But there's, there's, there is kooky behavior and there are questions constantly in the press, obviously, and you've talked about this in an acerbic way about the press, about whether he's mentally stable or not. You've, you've thought about that and you've decided that he's actually mentally stable. He's just an outsized character. It's more than that. I see what people are doing in their reaction to Trump that is more interesting to me. Like, this is a man who, against all odds, won the presidency, 
And it is crazy, by the way, when you actually pause <laughs> and reflect on it. Every few and I'm days. Not, I'm not, yeah. I mean, you ever do that? You ever wake up in the morning and go, oh, my God, Donald Trump became president? It's it's hilarious. It's like I imagine telling myself 20 years ago that this is what's happening, and it just makes me laugh all or, the time. Or, by the way, two years ago. <laughs> I know. Um, I don't know. I think two years ago you could kind of see that this was at least a possibility. Did you think it was a possibility before you got the nomination? Technically, I predicted he would win in January of 2016. Good so for yes, you. Um, and so when people are saying that the guy who acts the same way he's act acted for decades is, and who people voted for, knowing that he acted this way, now we're suddenly going to say that he's mentally unfit. Uh, I think that reasonable people look at that and say, "I don't think he's mentally unfit." So you believe that he's morally incompetent for the presidency, or he's not a moral paragon? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you believe that? Politically or managerially or dispositionally, he's competent for the presidency? Yeah, I think I, – I mean, I, I don't like his treatment of women from his wives to other women. I don't like the way he insults people and behaves in a juvenile manner. But it's hard to say that when it comes to management, he doesn't have some skills that are desperately needed or you know that haven't been around in a while. Even Give me an example. Things have been going well in the fight against ISIS. And you look at what the previous administration did where you were micromanaging helicopter deployments from the White House. And that wasn't working too well to actually eradicate ISIS. Donald Trump, I, you know, the, one of his staffers said that when they brought a similar question to him, he said, why, why would you be asking me about this? Like, you're, you're the bosses. You know what you need to do to get done. Like, don't, don't waste my time with this. And some of that managerial delegation can be great. He seems okay with having people who are I mean he's he's the person who chose uh, former general John Kelly to be his chief of staff that was a really good decision like obviously it was a chaotic crazy first year it's crazy that that Donald Trump won that someone who is as much of a political outsider as he is did win and that he sort of accomplished this revolution without an accompanying army usually when you see uh, some type of victory like this you have, hordes of people who are ready to go and fill in at the agency levels who understand the moment. That's not something that happened. And so given that, I think things have gone actually very well. And it also might mean that whereas in most presidencies, you see a really great first year where you accomplish quite a bit, and then it all kind of goes down year to year over the next three to seven years. You could see a scenario where year seven of this presidency is firing on all cylinders in a, way that, in a way that year one was not. You think he's going to win re-election? I don't. I, th- I definitely think it's too early to say he would not. But uh, I don't know. Just answer this question. Do you think that he's a racist? Well, I don't, except insofar as the human condition is one where people are sinful and harbor and everyone harbors sinful thoughts. But I think when he's but, accused but of being... But not everybody expresses that. Let's assume that's true, but not everybody expresses the sinful thought. The case for his racism never seems to be made. It seems to be assumed. There are public statements he's made, and then there are statements where people claim he says something in private where it's kind of snipped from context, and then it's immediately asserted to be um, racist or something. Like the asshole comments where everyone said, this is racist. I've heard so many people refer to different countries that way and never heard it that they're being accused of being racist. Even in the context of the same conversation, uh, when Donald Trump ended 
some temporary protections for immigrants. The argument against it was that you couldn't send these people back to these countries because they're veritable hellholes. Well, I didn't think they were being racist when they said that. I don't think that it reminds me of when he went to Mexico and he came back and gave an immigration speech where he was laying out his plans for merit-based immigration. This is an immigration system akin to what Canada and Australia have. The social media reaction among media elites was abject horror. And they just said, like, this feels like I'm at a Nazi rally. When you say things like that in response to reasonable policies that people might disagree on, but that are still like, you know, I don't think people think Canada's immigration policy is particularly racist. Um, I will stipulate that people dial it up to 11 all the time now. What I would argue with just going back to this issue of shithole and, 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 and the like is that. My grandparents came from a shithole. That's fine. But my grandparents are good people who achieved good things in America. There's the real feeling here that Donald Trump is not talking about the, the, the terrible governmental systems and economic corruption that leads places to become a shithole. Uh, he's talking about the people who are fleeing that shithole in order to seek a better life out in America. You know what I'm saying? I well, mean, except I, I, I don't know what you're saying. You're making you, some assumptions here that I think – need to be spelled out a little bit more or that we need to know the context of Donald Trump's remarks. For instance, if he was using this term in the context of the temporary status, it would undermine his very point. It also would undermine it if he were talking about his desire to move to merit immigration because the whole point of merit immigration is that it doesn't matter where you come from. You just need to have the skills to have a successful life in the United States. My point is what a lot of people are reacting to is the fact that they know their own parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, etc. did not have the skills. I mean, when my grandfather was on a boat at 13, they gave him a banana. He ate the peel because he had no idea what this was doing. I mean, he was illiterate and whatever. And then he came to America, managed to build a business, employ 100 people. And it was a guy was a from a, every perspective, it was successful. So, I, I mean, do you think that there should be do you think that immigration to the United States should be completely random? Or do you think there should be a policy that judges people based on some merit. I think we should I think it should be a combination of of refugees and family reunification and Chinese billionaires. And so does Donald well, Trump. Well, he doesn't seem to art- this is this goes back to a, 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 a earlier part of the conversation about the way he articulates things. Like sometimes the and I'm I'm the first to admit sometimes the outlandishness in part because I know the type, I find highly amusing. In some in some cases I find the outlandishness highly offensive. In other words, if he could just articulate, if he could just come out and say in, in a reasonable way, I want a mix of people who need to come here for economic reasons, who don't have skills, but are refugees and are good people. And I want uh, some Chinese billionaires and I want a Norwegian a- aerospace engineer and I want a Botswanan veterinarian. I think if he talked in that kind of way, maybe it would work better. Sure. I don't think you will find people who disagree that Donald Trump sometimes defeats his own best efforts through the way he talks. All right. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> but I mean, but I guess the, the only difference is, is it, is it kind of disqualifying as in, for national leadership? A way of the, the way of talking, the way of thinking about people that, so, that seems to d- divide up the look, why most is it presidents, not- you know, most presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama always tried to unite. I, I think rhetorically, often they failed. But they always thought to themselves, I'm the president of all of America. I have to try. That I will stipulate that Barack Obama sometimes failed. If you will stipulate that George W. Bush sometimes failed at this. Uh, but my point is Donald Trump doesn't even try. 
He doesn't make that effort to unite and not divide. Here's what I think is the problem, though. People are okay with all the many failures of Barack Obama and George W. Bush and their predecessors, so long as they spoke nicely. And for a lot of people, that the jig is up. They just don't care so much how you speak about something as much as fixing actual problems. And it's almost pathological how much people in D.C. care about the manner in which you it, – it's okay to bomb Iraq and destroy the Middle East and have all these foreign policy failures so long as you were appropriately nice at the U.N. or something. I mean, who cares? Like at some point – and I'm not I'm not saying that it's not important and that it wouldn't be nice to have a president who spoke differently. But sometimes a lot of what people are getting mad at is he's just saying things that are true. I'm not arguing that putting out bold ideas expressed sometimes outlandishly is useful. I'm asking you to, to weigh the value of civility in public discourse. Yeah, I think civility is very important. I think that it's not just a problem that the president, the current president, isn't civil. I actually think some of the previous presidents weren't as civil as they get as they get a reputation for. But our entire populace has lost civil discourse. But don't you want the we... leader of the country to model behavior for your children? Well, I do. And it's been a weird experience to forbid my children from learning what the president is saying. You do forbid your children from learning what they're saying? Well, I mean, I can't, I couldn't have them watch. I mean, because they're at an age where it would just be, it would, they're not at an age where they can listen to some of what he's saying. You know, during the campaign, you might recall there was really inappropriate, inappropriate things said during the debates. And I felt bad. I mean, when I was their age, I loved watching debates and it, it, and, and really made me excited about politics. And here I have to like keep them away from it. Um, We go to um, another related subject i think and i and i love to hear you on the subject of why a large portion of the american public doesn't like the quote mainstream press there's a guy i'm sure you know him i follow him on twitter kurt schlichter mm-hmm. he's alternately hysterical outrageous offensive i, I just I, I we go back and forth on twitter we used to go back and forth on twitter a little bit i, I find him i think he's an army officer or army reserve officer um and, and i remember him articulating in numerous different ways, the, the just the joy that he feels um, when Donald Trump rudely pushes back at what he sees as a kind of nauseating l- liberal elite consensus around a certain issue. And it's almost like, you know why we like him? Because he doesn't like you. Yeah, I think he has a good understanding. He's like almost... An instinctual, my husband jokingly calls it Rain Man for trolling, kind of instinctual (laughs) understanding of where to aim his fire. And I believe that Donald Trump didn't cause the the mainstream media's credibility problems. I, I believe he's a result of the mainstream media's credibility problems. If you talk to people who are not on the left, and even some who are on the left, actually, They all have like this breaking point where it just got to be too much for them. You know, for decades, conservatives have been talking about how bad the media are. um, It's somewhat bipartisan, too. I mean, Democratic presidents Mm. have complained about the media. It's absolutely true. But when you look at studies of what people think, definitely conservatives feel that the media are much more biased against them than liberals do. I mean, just overwhelmingly so. And for obvious reasons. Um, Wait, what are the obvious reasons? 
people who are in newsrooms are overwhelmingly liberal. They're less uh, practicing religious than the general population. They tend to have much more liberal views on social issues than the general population. And while some reporters are able to just do their jobs professionally without letting these personal views step in, for a lot of people, it's just too difficult. They can't even figure out how to frame a story in a more neutral way. You're not going to get an argument from me that newsrooms are overwhelmingly pro-choice as opposed to, let's say, I mean, the country might be 55-45 or I don't know how you divide it. This is worthy of discussion because it is actually a true thing. But what what I'm getting at is, is and I think you've, you've alluded to this, is you don't believe in the capacity of reporters to separate out their personal oh, I feelings. Do. I do okay. believe. I, I, some of the best reporters I know are freaking communists, but they do a really good job of just— You'll, you'll give me a, a list later. <laughs> um, but at some point, it went from being just this conservative talking point to a place of—it just broke people. And I think that the Mitt Romney campaign was a point for which a lot of Republicans just got broken. Talk about that. So people had— for years, you know, you'd put up a Republican candidate and they'd be portrayed as worse than Hitler for one reason or another. So they nominate Mitt Romney, who might be like the world's nicest person. Right. And even he's he, like a carton of milk. Yes. He's as offensive as a carton of milk. And, you know, there was that scene where he was doing a foreign visit and you had reporters running after him screaming, what about your gaffes? Uh, because he had said that people should be concerned about security at the Olympics in London or something, you know, some horrible, horrible faux pas that we just couldn't let this person into the presidency for for his lack of diplomatic skills in London or something. And when that campaign was over, and this is not to say that Mitt Romney didn't cause a lot of his own problems or that Barack Obama didn't run an excellent campaign, but people were angry at the media other people have different breaking points, whether it was, you know, how the Katrina was covered or how Kermit Gosnell, the serial murderer abortionist, was not covered or, uh, you know, just they're, they're, everyone has a different thing that radicalized them. But I think Donald Trump is the result of those me- media failures that people just said, like, oh, Mitt Romney wasn't good enough for you. Here, try on Donald freaking Trump for size. How do you like that? No, I I, I see your point, but it just seems as if. It's one thing to say that, oh, the New York Times got a story wrong and they need to fix that. It's another thing to talk about the press as the enemy of the people. It's another thing to attack uh, the leadership of of autonomous or independent law enforcement agencies. There's a series of events in this presidency that make you question whether Donald Trump is committed to the democratic process. And by the way, I'm not articulating now a quote-unquote liberal viewpoint. I mean, you hear this from every from Pete Weiner and Elliot Cohen and Michael Gerson and David our own David Frum and you know you you know the list and Jeff Flake and John McCain and 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 it goes on. I mean so talk about where are you where are you left those guys behind. Yeah, I mean those people are really struggling to come to terms with what happened uh, a year ago. <laughs> you sound like you sound like a therapist on a <laughs> on a late night radio show. But those Jeff, are, Jeff, I'm here for you. Those are two very important Important issues, the, the attacks on the media and the attacks on the FBI. Really quickly on the media, I think it's ludicrous to say that you can't criticize the media or that they are— I didn't say that. I said, no, no, but that's not that, what you're saying. You can't I mean, use that's Stalinist what, enemy of the people language. Even to say that if—I mean— That's literally a quote from the Stalinist It's period. also a title of an Ibsen play. I mean, it's not just something Stalin said and nobody else said. It's something that is popular parlance, and he did qualify it. You know, he would say— 
these people are fake news, or he would say the fake news, the fake news are the enemy of the people. He didn't say media are the enemy of the people. And also he's not actually, I mean, even like the thing that he did recently where he said, we need to revisit libel laws. That bothers me because he's actually suggesting changing law, although he was completely um, inarticulate about what his plan was there. But criticizing the media, particularly when they are operating in such a histrionic fashion, is totally fine. And the idea that Donald Trump doesn't have his First Amendment speech rights just because he's president. I don't think anybody in the media is saying that Donald Trump doesn't have a right to speak. They're well, they just... call it this, th- you know, they say it's such a threat. He awarded uh, people fake news awards for, for particularly yeah. bad jobs they did. And they said, this is a dangerous threat. No, it's fine. It's Donald Trump. I think when you say that everything's a dangerous, you know, existential threat when it's not, such as something that's pretty funny and obvious like these fake news awards, people don't take it seriously if there is a major threat that comes. No, no, no. And I looked at the fake news awards and most of those were dumb mistakes that people make. I think a lot of them were just the sort of like, uh, you know, a dumb tweet about something that was inaccurate, that was corrected. Just one example of one of the one of the awards was because CNN had published that James Comey would testify under oath that he had never told Donald Trump that he was not under investigation three times. In point of fact, he said precisely that he had told Donald Trump three times that he was not under investigation, and which you think is that exactly was malicious. Or, well, I don't. Or, I'm not or, saying. Or, yeah. I'm saying it's you, not you work, just. I mean, just like me, you've worked in newsrooms a lot. You know how many mistakes get made because not, of speed and everything it's else. Not just a dumb mistake, and they never explained what caused the problem. So, how was it possible that this source, who was extremely close to Comey, maybe his name even sounds very similar to that, could mislead? You know, when a source burns you, you Hol- should Comey. Yeah. <laughs> or as my colleague David Harsani says, for a guy who doesn't leak, James Comey does an excellent job of it. Um, <laughs> but how did that happen? And CNN has had multiple stories where they've been misled by sources and they haven't explained what happened. Anyway, I, it's, it's true that presidents and political leaders and leaders themselves should promote not just freedom of the press in terms of the law, but the culture surrounding it. And that's not something Donald Trump does. But you could also argue that his critiques of the media and his demands or his pressure that they improve their skills or his making them crazy to the point that they just implode also serve a good function for the democracy, uh, for the republic. Um, We need a media that is credible to hold people accountable. Our media are not credible right now. But well, I mean, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. And by the way, the media is everything, and I can't defend all of the media just like you can't condemn all of the media. It's sort of like condemming. And there are, but 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 my my. And by the way, Donald Trump, even when he gave out his awards, said, and there are also really good reporters. No, so even my, he doesn't. But condemn my, my all point media. is that you're dealing with a president who does lie. He does make up stuff. He does. Uh, I'm not saying that other presidents haven't lied. I think there's an unusual ferocity and velocity and ostentation to the level of dissembling and lying uh, about things that are observably. True. Or are we just going to disagree on that one, too? No, I think, I mean, clearly he's someone who has difficulties with the truth, whether by design or by rhetorical style. I mean, it's it's notable. And so it would be, in my view, better for the media to just kind of report what he, like the worst thing you could do to Donald Trump is just report on him fairly. Because then he looks like a clown. He just says something, just... he says something ridiculous. And then the overreaction is such that, that People observing it say, well, no, that, that's not what he said. He actually just said That's this. actually an interesting piece of advice. Um, and it's good for people to hear. 
because but, you don't have to you don't have to dial everything up when when the when the statement is on its face ridiculous just print the statement look we agree on something well there um, but i want to talk about the fbi yeah you know you see people who on the one hand will say we have a real big problem and black lives matter and we need to fix our policing because we have bias here. And then they say, how dare people criticize the FBI? Those two statements don't, and you see it the other way too, people who think the FBI is like scandal red, and they say, how could you possibly say that police officers are anything but above reproach? Um, intelligence agencies are incredibly powerful. They have the ability to destroy lives. They have the ability to spy on Americans. It would be good for journalists to demand accountability from these agencies, and they have not done that. They have just acted like if you critique what's going on there, that you are undermining the republic. I don't think that's true. They should be... You even see people who say, who are constantly criticizing Trump say, you can't criticize the FBI. Well, are you undermining the presidency by criticizing the president? No, you're just holding him accountable. Likewise, you can criticize how things are being run at the FBI without undermining the republic there. I, I think I've reached your libertarian core now. That's <laughs> a very, very uh, well-articulated libertarian view about the, the power and danger of law enforcement. I want to talk a little bit about you. What is it like to be you in the Washington, D.C. media environment? So that has been very interesting. Um, you know, this is an area that overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton. The resistance to Trump is not just on the left. It's the sort of like where the headquarters of the conservative resistance to Trump are as well. And you know, my own husband and I disagree on a lot of what we've seen in the last year. And I just do view the situation differently. And there has been a lot of peer pressure for me to not view things the way I do. And I'm Have just, you lost friends? Yeah. Yeah. But what do, what do what do the never Trumpers among your friends misunderstand about the moment? So I think that tr Trump upended so many things, and uh, the conservative movement is one of the more interesting things that he upended. And it was certainly hard for me because I also I felt this when he started when I started to realize he was winning the nomination which was technically after I predicted he would win the presidency but I still hadn't Did like, you vote for him in the primary? Oh no. Um I normally don't talk about who I vote for but Well you, know. you just told me who you didn't vote for. That's good enough. Wait, I have a I have a story that I or no. No, um, tell no no no. <laughs> yeah, if you say on this podcast I have a story, okay. no. I, you have to tell the story. I walked with my daughter from school to go vote in the general election and she asked me who I was voting for, and I said, well, you know, in America, we have secret ballot, and it's a really important thing. Nobody knows who I'm voting for, and I get to do that privately, and it's a really sacred thing, and you'll get to do it when you're older. And I'm just going on and on. You're and doing Miss Civics on the way. And she says, how come you let me watch you vote for Ted Cruz in the primary? <laughs> <laughs> So um, I was like, oh, dang it. In fact, I let her pick because I didn't really didn't really know who to vote for. Per, you know, I, I was kind of. How, how old is she? She was like six at the time. Well, um, voter fraud. I'm just going to. I mean, I let out. her I'm, tell me. Who to I got it. That's got legal, it. right? I got um, it. Yes, of course. So it was very hard for me. I, I I'm a free market person. I'm for criminal justice reform. I'm pro-life like. Donald Trump is not a guy who matches up with these things. And it seemed well, that he was... he's pro-life, sort he of. He has... I, mean. I don't know if he is, but he's certainly operating as if he is. Right. And 
at some point, maybe that's more important than personally being that way. I don't know um, if you're in a position of authority. He He's beholden to pro-lifers, which might be better than actually being pro-life, but just using those people um, for votes, but not actually accomplishing much. Uh, Is that cynical or just realistic, what you just I don't, said? I don't. I Yes. Good answer. So um, I, I ask that because you know a, a lot of a lot of evangelicals, obviously, who voted for him, look at his personal lifestyle and I assume are repulsed, but nevertheless go for him because if abortion is a paramount issue for you, you want the Supreme Court on your side for the next forty years. It is plausible to understand why somebody would hold their nose about the rest. Well, there are two things I would add to that. One is that it's not just about abortion, but in general, the court has been moving in ways that might restrict religious liberty. Actually, I mean, their, their decisions have been good um, on religious liberty in most cases, but some of some of what they've done has threatened that, too. I mean, if you remember the dissents in Obergefell, the uh, fairly recent one that legalized same-sex marriage, they were all focused on religious liberty. Three right. of them in particular were just sounding big, bright, red alarm bells. And so when you're when you're facing an existential threat, um, that's also important at the Supreme Court level. And the thing that I think people don't think about what evangelicals had to do is they had to pick between two candidates who they found to have moral problems. And we kind of just brush aside the problems with Hillary Clinton these are these were two morally flawed candidates, which made it not as easy, even for people who prioritize moral character. I will register my disagreement on that point without going into it, because who needs to rehearse that argument again? Clinton record. I'm just saying it wasn't in a vacuum but, for them. Uh, yes, but uh, OK, we're just <laughs> you, 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 I'll give you this round because I want to come back to the, the personal stuff, which is which is interesting to me. The. Part of the question is, what is it like to be a member of the American elite, a coastal elite? No, no, no. I, I want to note for our viewers right now that she's making a funny face. You're an important journalist in Washington. You go on TV all the time. You live uh, in the Washington capital region. You're highly educated. What is it that you find distasteful about the elite with which you mingle? <laughs> well, you know, we talk about this moment being a populist moment, and obviously there is something happening not just in this country, but globally where there's some type of popular uprising against elite mismanagement of systems. And again, maybe this is because I come from a more libertarian background. I don't see as much difference between the Republican and Democratic parties as people in D.C. tend to. I think they're both responsible for mismanaging some really important fundamental questions about national sovereignty, about whether we should invade countries willy-nilly, particularly without an exit strategy, um, about how we organize our economy to benefit large corporations or bail them out. And the elite mob, I think, has just been, at this point in time, they kind of got those fundamental questions wrong. And the popular, the more like, you know, the group that we would normally call the mob, actually kind of had good instincts on some of this stuff. They didn't the people, like the, people on the, the bailouts. And so, you know, in Russia, they have um, systematic opposition. So Putin lets certain critics be inside the levers of power so just so he can kind of like get information from them right. and they get to be part of the kleptocracy. The real people who oppose him are on the outside and risking life and limb, right? 
And there was some aspect of what was happening in D.C. where the conservative movement had become the systematic opposition. They were allowed in. They were listened to so long as their ideas never actually took root. So pre-Gingrich Republicans who would just sort of work together with Democrats on things that maybe you didn't like. Not just that they would work with. I'm saying that they would put forth conservative ideas, but they were content to lose. They were okay. Like they were heading up think tanks or they were heading, you know, they were having journalistic positions that worked out well for them. And they would get on TV and they would do their due duty, but they were okay with losing. And I think the people kind of got sick of voting for people who said that they would make change or they would support conservative establishments that they that said that they would represent their interests and they had failed to do so. And so I think that is the most interesting thing about this moment is like that I'm thinking on right now is just that level of disruption. But let me ask you this, though, stipulating that I understand that feeling. People who have that feeling are looking for a vehicle to take them to a new place, a new system. Trump just seems like a fairly flawed vehicle for that. And, 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 and he's driving them in many ways off the road. I mean, there are, there are talented politicians who thought the way that this group, this other mob, using the term mob in a value-neutral way, uh, aligned with, how did it come to pass that um, you got this triple divorcee, uh, real estate, celebrity TV, huckster-type personality, totally a-religious, and so on? How, How did it come to pass that that's the person who's delivering this group to the promised land. Well, I think maybe it's because he wasn't beholden to that old sort of that the old way of ways. Of he listening. wasn't in the web. And in fact, in a really weird way, maybe the never Trump movement on the right only confirmed that somehow like they were so unreasonable. He was just, he's just sort of liberated from this universe that we've all been operating in. And he just. You know, he keeps making decisions that and who knows how long this will last. When I predicted that he would win, I predicted he would be a progressive. And he's surprised me by not. I thought he would come into office and immediately be making deals with Democrats and just have big spending bills and whatnot. Um, it's not happened yet. So I don't know, you know, what the future holds. But uh, I don't know. Well, it's I, just, I wish you knew what the future holds because then this would be a really great episode. There is something noticeably different. And it would be cool if. Other people on the right learned from the good things that are coming out of this as opposed to just constantly freaking out about him being Donald Trump. Well, I mean, you call it constant freaking out. I, I, I think I give them a little bit more credit. A lot of them are serious Christians who just can't abide a style and a personal record that they find egregious. I mean, at a certain point, doesn't it become irreducibly a moral question? This person is not morally, religiously qualified for national leadership. I am close to people who fit that description, including married to someone who fits that (laughs) description. So I know it's a genuine view. I think it would be nice also for people to recognize that other people can come to different sides of it. Um, But the fact is that Donald Trump is president and that there's a lot to be done during this time even if you think that part of what needs to be done is a you know, reflexive hysteria against everything he says. Molly Hemingway, thank you very much for being on the show. You're very... Oh, no. 
I was going to call you articulate, but that would be like ridiculous. Clean and articulate. You're, you're just so clean. You're so clean and family-oriented. Um. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend. Production help from Kim Lau and Abdella Fayad. If you like this, subscribe and rate us. If you don't like it, I'm wondering why you're still listening. I mean, we're at the end credits already. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.